town had come to pray for rain. A small town in Northern California had been below the drought line of where healthy rain should be for two or three years. And so the pastor of the small town called everyone together and said, we're going to pray for rain, we're going to pray for our farmers, we're going to pray for our crops, we're going to pray for our economy because God can do miracles. And so the day came where they were all going to come together to pray. And one by one they filed into the church. The pastor was saying, thank you for coming, thank you for coming. He could feel the spirit of God there in the church. And he stands up in front of them and he's just about ready to start this whole thing about prayer and why it's important we need to pray together. And there in the front row is a young girl, probably 10, 11. She has an umbrella in her hands. And he's kind of curious because it hasn't rained for a long time. And so he looks down and he, he says to the girl, why have you brought an umbrella? It's, there's no rain. It hasn't rained for two or three years. Why would you bring an umbrella? And she said, well, everyone here came expecting to pray, but I came expecting rain. Here's my question for us this morning. What has happened to our expectation in prayer? What has happened in the church that we have stopped expecting our prayers to work. We see the picture in Acts of the the church growing, filled with the Spirit, moving, growing, 3,000 are added, 500 are added, more and more every day are added, and people are praying together. And we see that in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in them, and they pray and they lift their voices together to God And in Acts 4, they pray so hard and so expectantly that the walls of the place where they are are shaken. And in Acts 12, something has disappeared. So in those short moments between Acts 4 and Acts 12, even in the early church, something has disappeared. We have moved from a time of expectation and urgency to a time of, this is just another thing I've got to check off my list. Just another prayer request needs to get filled, and I'll do it, because it's what I'm called to do. So what has happened to the church in that time? Where has our expectancy gone? How can we become a community of believers, and how can we become a praying community if we don't pray any longer with expectation or with urgency. We tend to pray for rain, but we always forget to bring our umbrella when that happens. And so how can we restore this back into the church? We're going to read a passage today um, in Acts 12 that talks about this very thing, about where the expectation of the church had gone. So we'll start at verse 1, and what had happened in verse 1 is that King Herod, who is in charge of this area where the church is growing, he had become violent to all the members of the church. Um, he had seen people, and, and he had sent his soldiers out and said, if you see someone from the church, I want you to take them, and I want you to lock them up. And in fact, they uh, had James, the brother of John, 
and they put him to death. They hated the church so much that they put James to death. Now, they hated the church so much they killed Jesus as well. And so this just continues in the whole line of what are we going to do with these people? They're killing the Roman power. And so they had James and they killed him. And the Jews really loved this. In fact, they laughed. They were giddy about the fact that James, one of the strong pillars of the community of believers, had been killed. And so Herod, because he thought this was great, he thought this was wonderful, he thought that everyone was wanting this, goes out and finds another. And so during the festival of unleavened bread, they proceed to seize Peter also. Now after arresting him, they put him in prison and handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 men. Now what they would do is they would send out two men to stand at the doors. So there would be two soldiers standing at each of the doors, the inner door and the outer door. And then what they would do was they would shackle the other two guards to the prisoner. So we have two at the doors, and we have two that are actually shackled to Peter. They were serious about this. Because here's what had happened. This wasn't new for Peter. Peter had been arrested and and put in prison like four or five times. It was starting to become like an episode of Law and Order, where he just kept going to prison for all these things, and they find him and they lock him up, and he gets out of prison, and he comes back out of prison. Now, your Bible might call this section... Peter escapes from prison, but he doesn't escape. He's actually delivered from prison time and time and time again. Because here's what happens. Those four guards were not enough. In verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Peter, the rock of the church, imprisoned again, and each time... He had been delivered. Now this word eagerly in here is ectonos in Greek. It's actually where we get the root word for our English word for extend. Ectonos means to extend. Here it's being used in a sense of eagerness, of fervency, of constantness. And so here's what the picture of prayer becomes in this early church. Extending our hand out. Not just up, not just vertically to God, but extending our hearts and our hands and our arms and our lives to the people around us. This ectonos is the idea that prayer connects everything around us. It moves us from this verticalness of prayer to this horizontalness of prayer. Our prayers are meant to connect us to God and the church But see, also our prayers reflect our attention and our awareness. And so if we're connected to the people around us, if we're paying attention, if our priorities lie in knowing the people around us and seeing them, we will be praying for them. It's almost an automatic thing at that point. They see the urgent need and they put everything they have into it. Now in verse 6, it picks up again. It says, The night before Herod 
was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. That's nice. That's a nice place to be, right? The night before your trial, you just sleep like a baby. That's faith right there. Because he was so in love with what God had done already. He was already so aware of what had happened. And he felt no stress and no pressure at all. But that wouldn't be me in prison. Suddenly, verse 7, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, basically kicked him in the ribs and said, Hey, wake up. It's time to go. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. So this is like mom waking you up for school in the morning. You're half asleep. Hey, hey, wake up. You have to go. This is your last call. Also, don't forget to put on a coat. Also, don't forget to put on shoes because you're going to need shoes today. Also, follow me out to the car. Also, don't forget your toast because that's ready and you need food for the day. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, freaky, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And it says, Peter came to himself. Suddenly he came to himself, which in Greek means he came to his mind. He found himself. He was no longer out of his mind. That's going to be an important in just a second. And Peter, he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were expecting would happen. The Jews were expecting one thing, that the power of Herod would overcome the power of the church. That the power of Herod, because they could see what was happening, was physically in front of them. They were expecting Herod to win the day. James had been killed. And now here is Peter with 16 soldiers watching him in prison. Herod was going to get what he wanted. Now contrast that with this next section. Because the expectation of what the Jews wanted was different than the praying church. The story suddenly flips and we now focus not on Peter, but on the community of believers. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. By the way, can you see the picture of what's happening here? Because in this miraculous moment, two really important people, actually three really important people are in this place. John, whose brother James had just died. Peter, who was just delivered from prison. And Mark, whose house they were at, whose mother's house they were at. Mark writes a gospel. John writes a gospel. And through Luke, Peter is in the gospel. And then Peter writes some letters. You see how we've painted this picture? God has brought all of these people together to witness this miracle. And what pours out of that is a book, the Bible. 
the witness of this. Peter knocked and Rhoda came to answer. Verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice, oh, so here's what's happening. Peter's standing outside of the door and he's saying, hey, let me in, let me in. I just got out of prison. And Rhoda, God bless her, God bless Rhoda, because she gets put in this book and most of the time we don't remember women's names. It was just said a, a woman servant, but Rhoda gets her name in here. And then um, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it. Yeah, poor Rhoda. I mean, come on. That's like a fail right there, but it's okay. It's okay. We remember her. And uh, so she goes back and she, so she goes into this room. Okay, so here's what's happening. She goes into this room and she says, Peter is out by the door. So she's obviously telling some people, probably the praying church, that Peter is standing outside the door. And here's verse 15, and this is the key. They say, you're out of your mind. Have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? Remember, Peter just found himself. He just popped back into his mind. And now the church is saying to Rhoda, are you out of your mind? Have you lost it? Are you crazy? When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, no, it must be his angel. Because see, he's already died. This couldn't be true. See, we were praying for him to be delivered out of prison, but it can't be true that he's been delivered. It's got to be his ghost. Let me try and explain it away in a rational sense that my human brain understands. He couldn't have been delivered because he was with 16 soldiers. Why have we lost our expectation of prayer as a church? Why do we pray for deliverance? Why do we pray for these things to happen? And yet when Peter shows up at the door, we can just rationalize it away. Wow, my sickness was healed. Wow, I found a job. Wow, my children came to Christ. We can find a rational excuse for all of that. They prayed, but they didn't expect. But Peter continued knocking, verse 16. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. The Greek word there means, that's uh, where we get our word ecstasy. They came back out of their minds. So Peter came back into his. He was the only one thinking rationally. And then they turn around and say, Rhoda, are you out of your mind? And then when they see Peter, they lose their minds because of the experience. The Bible is alive. All of these things are connected to one another. As we speak and we read this, Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and describe how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Peter continued knocking. And this persistence that he felt, he continued at it. Even though his prayer wasn't answered, even though the door wasn't open to him, he continued at it. Because he knew the urgency of getting on the other side of that door. He knew the urgency of praying that prayer. He knew the urgency of helping people stand in the gap to connect with God. And look what answered prayers do. They lead us to share our praise and connect. This was such a deliverance that half the New Testament was written 
because continually they saw the miracles of God being performed and growing and persisting. This isn't about personal prayer today. We've talked at great length about what personal prayer, creating a prayer life, does for you. This today is about corporate prayer. This is about a church that prays. Corporate prayer, except for a very few spots in the New Testament, is how the Bible consistently speaks about prayer. The first prayer is in Genesis 4. And it says, they all came together and raised their voices to God. When they get to the other side of the Red Sea in Exodus, they come together and raise their voices to God together. And when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, it's our Father, our daily bread. The idea of prayer in the Bible is a corporate one. That together we are called to pray. That our individual prayer lives are working through our corporate prayer, an extension of that idea. We pray, though, as though prayer doesn't work, as though it doesn't accomplish much. See, if we really were convinced that prayer changes the way God acts, if we were really convinced that this was the way that God wanted to work through His world and through His people, if we were really convinced of that idea, then we would pray a lot more. But we pray less because I think that we don't believe that that works. I believe that somewhere between that point and here, we've come to the expectation that maybe my prayers just don't matter that much. Maybe that as a body, maybe that as a church, things just really don't matter anymore, that God can't work through me. If we pray little, it's because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. But God answers every prayer. (laughs) But we might not like the answer. Every prayer is answered. Everything that we pray for is answered. But it might not be answered in the way we want it to be answered. Jesus was teaching And he said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man, the master of the house, who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And after coming to an agreement with the workers for a denarius per day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those people, he said, you also go into the vineyard, and I will give you whatever is right. So they went Going out again about the sixth and ninth hour, he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing there and said to them, Why are you standing here the whole day unemployed? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go also into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning from the last to the first. And when the ones hired about the eleventh hour came, they received a denarius apiece. And when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but they also received a denarius apiece. And when they received it, they began to complain against the master of the house, saying, these last people worked one hour, and you made them equal to us who have endured the burden of the day and the burning heat. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm not doing you wrong. 
Did you not come to an agreement with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I want to give to the last person the same as I gave to you. Is it not permitted for me to do whatever I want with what is mine? Or is your eye evil because I am generous? Thus the last will be first and the first last. What does that have to do with corporate prayer? Look at it this way. We pray and sometimes we get what we want. And we pray and sometimes other people's prayers are answered and not ours. And how do we feel about that? That makes us kind of not want to pray anymore. Because we selfishly look at what other people have received and we look at how much they're growing and where their faith is. And well, maybe I just don't have enough faith. Maybe I just can't push myself to that point. Maybe if I just had a pastor pray for me instead of someone else because they are like super Christians and, and they have more faith than I do. It doesn't work that way. The way that it works is God tells us to pray and everyone prays and he answers those prayers as he sees fit. It's not more or less faith. It's not because we are better at praying or worse. In our communities, are we connecting with people or are we keeping people at arm's length? Because prayer is meant to connect us. Prayer is a way for us to reach out and say, what is going on around me? Corporate prayer is an opportunity for me to get out of my bubble and say, hey, what's happening over here? It's an awareness. Prayer is meant to connect us to God, but to reconnect us to our faith community. See, corporate prayer teaches us about other people. How can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? It teaches us to be in a community. It teaches us to be a reflection of what God wants us to be. Corporate prayer calls us to submit our entire lives to Christ. And I think one of the problems with corporate prayer is that we just don't want to be submitted completely. We just want to have a piece of our own that we can hold on to. Where we say, you know what, this is mine. This is kind of personal. My prayer life is personal to me. I just don't want to hand that off. But see, corporate prayer teaches us to listen intently, that we must lock arms with others, speaking when they can't speak for themselves. Praying in a community means we've got to look like a community. Praying in a community, praying together, draws us together. We can't have one without the other. If we want to pray together, we've got to do both. We've got to pray and we've got to be connected to each other. We have to stand with each other, unified in what we're saying. Entering into the presence of the Holy Spirit. To say, we can't do this alone, but God, we're crying out to you that this thing is going to work. Corporate prayer reveals God to each other. And here's where we are. What we pray for says what our priorities are. And so if we want to make our priorities about us, if we want to make our prayers individual, if we want to say, God, this is about me at this time. This is about me losing my job. This is about me having problems with my marriage. This is about me in these tough spots. Then that's where our priority is going to lay. 
We're going to be a people who are concerned about ourselves and not concerned about each other. And the picture of the church in Acts is time and time again they were together. They shared all things together. Eating and praying and worshiping all together. The unity of Christ revealed. And see, in our prayers, our priorities aren't on revealing God, but on revealing us. We need to rediscover the prayers of the church and become a house of prayer. Um, I bet you didn't know this, that in, uh, in Acts 2, when it says they committed themselves to praying the prayers, um, some Bibles say they committed themselves together in prayer, and some translations, translations say they committed themselves to the prayers. Now, that's a choice. That's a choice that translators make. But the Greek there does have the definitive article, they committed themselves together to the prayers. See, there were prayers that the church would pray through. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a little bit like that other church, the way they do things, uh, that starts with a C. That's fine. You can think that. But here's the thing, is that that's actually what the early church was doing. They were praying through these corporate prayers together. Now, we don't know exactly what those prayers are, but the prayer that Jesus teaches in Matthew to his disciples, our Father in heaven, that's one of the prayers they would have done. But this was a model of prayer. This wasn't a a dogma of prayer. This wasn't, you have to repeat this word It was, how do we stand in front of God and pray? How are we as corporation of believers in a community praying to God? Are we doing it together? Or are we doing it separate? And then coming together and trying to fit those pieces. So what would it look like to become a house of prayer? It takes three things that we just read about. It takes this urgency that as we're looking at prayer requests, as we're looking people in the eyes and praying for them, we have to pray like our lives depend on it. That this other person's life depends on it. That if we were to stop praying, nothing would happen. And again and again and again, if we believe that prayer is the way that God works through us, then that's true. If we stop praying, if we don't believe in the urgency of reaching people, if we don't believe in the urgency of stepping in front of them and saying, how can I pray for you today? I will do it and I will do it and I will do it. Then what are we doing? We have lost that urgency. And we've got to pray with this expectation, this idea that when we pray, something will happen. That God will answer those prayers. That God will always come through. That God will always release people from bondage. That God will always heal a relationship. It may not look the way we want it to, but that should not discourage us. Are we becoming selfish in the fact that other people, it looks like they have their prayers answered? And then in persistency. How often, and maybe this is just me, but how often... Do we just offer one prayer and call it good? Do we say, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then we pray, 
And then we forget all about that prayer. We need to pray continuously, eagerly. We need to pray like our lives depend on it and someone else's life depends on it. If we believe that prayer makes a difference, are we praying like it? And a result of this, a result of these three things as a house of prayer becomes unity. Participation in corporate prayer begins to take out the individualistic assumptions that Christianity is only about me and my relationship with God, and it begins to reassign us as individual Christians in a congregation. We are resituated so that we become aware of this person who is sick. We become aware of this person who's just had a baby. Or we become aware of this person who's unemployed. Or we become aware that this person who's just become a Christian. Participating in corporate prayer helps us discover that our lives as followers of Christ are tied up with one another's. It helps us to discover how God cares about the congregation as an entire body. We become aware. And when we pay attention to something, we value it. And so are we paying attention to each other? Are we striving to become a group of people that pay attention to one another? That we are aware of the things happening around them? Or are we so isolated? Are we keeping everyone at arm's length that we just just don't see the need there? So how do we create this culture of prayer? And I think we need to do it in two places. We need to create a culture of prayer here in our church And we need to create a culture of prayer in our homes because both are wrapped around the idea of family. Both are wrapped around the idea that body can change the whole thing. The great Korean pastor, Watchman Nee, said, Our prayers lay the track down which God's power can come. Like a mighty locomotive, His power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without rails. Are we laying the track down for God to come and work in our church, in our community, in our family, in the world around us? Because if we're starting to pray like that, we're starting to focus on the picture of what prayer looks like in Acts. Now, we're going to have an opportunity to kind of practice corporate prayer and what that looks like. Last week, we filled out these... um, prayer request cards. And if you weren't here, that's okay. But you're going to get one of those back. And I've asked uh, some people to help me out in passing those out. But you're going to get a prayer request card. And on it is going to be a prayer request. And here's what I want you to fight the temptation to do. I want you not to look at it as a prayer request. I want you to look at it as a person. Somewhere behind that, someone wrote down their prayer request. They thought it was important enough to share it with you and share it today and to make it known. So stop looking at it as a check mark. Stop looking at it as a list that you just need to fulfill and get through and check those things off. When we start to look at prayer requests, start to look at the people behind them. Start to look at who they are. Now, some of them have their names written on them. That's great. Some of them don't. But if yours has a name on it and you know that person, after 
the service today, go and tell them you prayed for them. You want to start making connections? You want to start extending your reach to people around you? You want to tell people that I'm in this together with you? Go and tell them you prayed for them. Now, if that's a little embarrassing, if that's a little bit shocking to you, work your way up to it. Don't do it this week, but get there. And here's another thing that can help us create a culture. Um, this is something that I've been trying for a little bit, and it's really transformed the way that my prayer life has happened. Um, I've started to pray out loud, even when I'm by myself. Because here's the thing that I notice is that I don't pray as good as I think I pray in my head. Because what happens is in my head is when I start thinking of things I need to pray about, then I start thinking about those things. And then when I start thinking about those things, I start thinking about other things. And then when I start thinking about other things, lightsaber duels happen up here. And then once we get to lightsaber duels, prayer time is done. And so what I've started to do is pray out loud, even in this personal time of prayer, because now I can focus. In fact, when Jesus was teaching the prayer in Matthew, he said, when you pray, say this. See, I'm not really even sure we were ever taught to pray in our heads. I think the model of prayer is one that's out loud. Sure, God will hear us as we speak inside. But imagine what that would do if we could focus through prayer. If we could speak those things and hear them. We're not only connecting the words in our brain, but we're connecting them outside. And we're hearing them. And we're pushing them. And we're focused now. That's urgency. That's looking at a person as a person and not just as a prayer request. Are we laying down the tracks? 